Hey, and welcome to Mumspire, your go-to place for inspiration, information, and great tips on how you can become a happier and healthier mum. My name is Anna Maria, and I'm your host. I work as a naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist, doula, and yoga instructor. But most importantly, I'm a fellow mum. In this episode, I'm bringing you an interview I did with Jess Ozi, who is a Vedic meditation teacher. I have been a practitioner of Vedic meditation or a meditator for several years now, and I actually started when I was pregnant with my first child, and I have found it incredibly helpful and beneficial in terms of restoring myself continuously as a mother, meaning finding small pockets of time where I get to be quiet and I get to restore myself. And that's really the beauty of Vedic meditation in my personal experience is that it really gives you the ability to practice self-care. So I have been recommending Vedic meditation to everyone who will listen and anyone who will ask. I, I highly recommend looking into Vedic meditation and understanding what it is and how it works. But today I wanted to actually do it on the podcast and hopefully it will inspire you to look into it and see if this is something that resonates with you. Let me introduce you to Jess Osi. Jess Osi is a meditation teacher of Vedic meditation. Jess offers the wisdom, techniques, and community to support a journey into awakening. She's a qualified Vedic meditation teacher and Ayurvedic practitioner, and is passionate about helping women and mothers to find inner bliss and wholeness. Jess believes that by deepening our connection to ourselves, we can offer our best self to our partners, work life, families, and the world at large. Jess is a passionate community builder. She facilitates spaces for people to connect, feel held, and ultimately be supported to live their highest truth. I had the pleasure and honor of being a birth doula for Jess and Tony, her partner, and their little baby, Indy. So I am incredibly excited to have her on the podcast because I do feel quite connected to Jess after all that we've been through together. But I also am really happy to be able to offer you, the listener, this information about meditation because there's no doubt that meditation is highly recommended across several modalities these days. And there are many different avenues you can take if you're exploring mindfulness and meditation. And I also feel like there is a lot of question marks. So people know that meditation is beneficial but where do they start? What is best? And why are there so many different types of meditation? So luckily, I can share with you that Jess clarifies a lot of this in our conversation together. I hope you enjoy it. And Jess has kindly shared that she has two courses coming up in December. And as part of my partnership with Jess, all of the students who are referred to Jess via this podcast, or if you are one of my clients, just tell her that and you will receive 10% discount when learning to meditate with Jess. I highly recommend you look into her and her website is jessoz.com and that's spelled J-E-S-S-O-S-I-E.com and you can reach out to her and ask any questions. I am sure she'll be happy to connect with you. 
So without further ado, um, enjoy the interview and conversation I had with Jess. Welcome, Jess. It's extra special to have you on the podcast. I think you're the first one on my podcast that I've actually also attended a birth with. Your actual birth or your daughter's birth. It's really special and I am glad you want to talk to me about this meditation business because it's something I talk about all the time with women in general, but a lot of the time with my doula clients and in clinic because I think it's an invaluable tool to have amongst all kinds of other things. And you're a meditator, you're a meditation teacher, and you're a mama, so you're perfect for this. So thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's <laughs> a real deep honor to be here because I truly, truly believe in the work that you do and the offering that you offer to all the women Um it's, yeah, it's such a pleasure. I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> Good. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I always think it's really interesting to hear the journey of coming into meditation. Tell me a little bit about how you became a meditator mm-hmm. and how you became a teacher. Okay, sure. Not to tell <laughs> Just you. that little story. Um, so there's sort of two parts to it as to how I came to learn to meditate. The first part is that I was in the corporate world really struggling with anxiety and stress with my job, certainly blaming the job for the reason that I was stressed, not the physiology. And I I was really struggling and I actually lost myself. And it was one of those experiences, which I'm sure people can relate, where you kind of know there's something more to life than what you're experiencing, but you don't have the tool to get there. You don't actually know how to access that higher self or that better part of you. And I was in this downward spiral of suffering and experiencing extreme anxiety where I would have panic attacks. I would actually be calling my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, Tony, at work. He happened to work at the same company and tell him that he had to meet me. And it was about four times a day where we'd have a meeting and I'd say, you know, I'd be pulling my hair out and crying. And I was just at this point of absolute desperation And I knew it wasn't me. I knew that that version of myself, (laughs) there was something way better. And I I just didn't know how to get there. I'd tried so many other techniques and I'd tried tried everything, the weird and wonderful things that the world has to (laughs) offer. I'd done lots of travel. I'd done lots of personal development. But um, nothing ever sort of sustained me through that period. And it was only when... I was at my really sort of worst point where I said to my best friend who'd been nagging me about Vedic meditation for about a year, I said to her, I just want to find more self-love. Like I'm really, you know, I really need help. And I just, and she was like, I've been telling you about this for (laughs) a year, Vedic meditation, go do an intro talk. Um, And so that's part one. And part two of the story is that I've always been a seeker of truth. And I think that like I was touching on before, I'd tried everything. I am so interested in personal development and passionate about one's own evolution and journey, one's spiritual journey. And so I'd done a lot of research in different areas, but hadn't kind of found something that truly, truly clicked. And when I went to the intro talk of my teacher, everything that she said made sense to me. And it was like 
I'd been looking and waiting for this thing my entire life. And so I ended up learning the next day and convincing her to teach me at 6am because of my busy corporate schedule at the time. And she did. And within those first four days, the, the course runs over four days, and within those first four days of learning, I knew I'd be a teacher because I knew what was being offered to me was truly, truly profound and life-changing. And it was. <laughs> mm, wow. What was, the, what was the thing that you noticed when you went from corporate dress to doing the first few days of the mm. intro mm. or initiation? What do mm. we call it? Yeah. Well, learning to meditate. What, yeah. was the, what happened? What was the thing that yeah. seemed right? The major thing was, there was two things. The major things were spontaneous moments of joy that, that I hadn't experienced in over a year because of the anxiety that I was experiencing and because of the self-loathing and the... Um, you know, just the awful negative paddings and the high stress. I hadn't had that moment of walking down the street and just feeling a wave of bliss or happiness for no reason. You know, everything had its reason and everything was bound and tight and restricted. Um, so that was huge. Within those first four days, I was noticing that the world looked brighter to me. The colors mm. were appearing brighter and everything felt more in flow. Um So that was part one. And part two was just that even in those first few days, weeks, months of learning, especially, um, the anxiety just dropped away. The anxiety that I've been suffering with and being feeling so bound by and pretty much to the point of non-function. Like think about in the middle of a work day, not being able to be in the office because it's triggering you too much. You're too scared about what someone's going to say or the amount of workload that's going to be put on you. And so kind of hiding in a meeting room with your frustrated boyfriend um, who, you know, doesn't know how to help you. So when that started to shift and it shifted very, very quickly for me, um, there was no going back. Yeah, yeah. I think so many can relate, I know, I know so many can relate to the pressure, the negative self-talk, mm. of course the anxiety. I feel like I feel like it's in the water. <laughs> it's so common. Mm. Um, and to hear that something can shift that quickly, it sounds too good to be true. Like mm. it's kind of, it sounds like magic. Mm. Um, yet I know that it's a very simple and very down-to-earth practice. Mm. Um And yes, it certainly feels like magic, but it it just is. It's just not when you hear some such a major shift um, that you can go from not coping in your day to day situation, and then suddenly feeling, you know, waves of joy as you walk down. <laughs> I mean, that's it's full on. It's amazing. Mm. It sounds just mm. yeah. Now your wonderful husband Tony <laughs> was was he a meditator? <laughs> so he thought I was a big hippie for doing it and would laugh at me for the first about year of learning um you know I was meditating because I, I could do it with anywhere that I could safely close my eyes and so in a busy lifestyle that meant I was going to be really opportunistic and creative um which meant that if we ever had a you know, a drive that was longer than 20 minutes, I'd say, you're driving, I'm meditating. And he would have to sit and drive um, while I closed my eyes and, you know, practiced, practiced the technique. Or um, 
it was it was certainly in his face, but he wasn't ready to learn. And there was definitely no um, no point in trying to convince him uh, to do something that he didn't want to do or he wasn't ready. But he did think it was rather funny that this was something that I did. And he was also seeing the results, so he was kind of like, I think it's time to meditate again. I think you haven't done your <laughs> afternoon. He was very encouraging of the process, but for himself. And then it ended up that he was surrounded by friends this one evening at a Bucks party, and people were asking questions about meditation, and he had all the answers. And so he came home that night saying, I'm going to learn to meditate. It's so obvious. I was like, yes. It's time. (laughs) It's good. Yeah. So he learned a little bit after me, but we practice it together apart. We help each other with the practice because obviously managing a baby now as well, you kind of have to share the load and also share the opportunity to meditate. Yeah. Which is exactly what we need to talk about because (laughs) the challenge of juggling life in itself and also becoming parents um, often. I tend to talk to people who are either very close to having babies or already have had babies. Mm. And for the for them to hear that they need to do something else, mm. add something to their life mm. that apparently, quote unquote, is going to make them better, is already too much to hear for them because life is very full and very stretched for anyone who is a parent. So it is a bit of a juggle. Um, and I admire you two. I mean, you two are just like the golden standard to be honest like it's so amazing to see how you're doing parenting and how you're doing life together as a little family and um and doing the practice and the mm. lifestyle you're living it's it's so wonderful to be part of so let's talk a little bit about why this how this technique vedic meditation differs from the many other styles of meditations out there are they all the same what's what why what is it <laughs> Okay, so good question, because meditation is like saying, you know, these days everyone meditates or everyone knows about meditation. It's not some weird hippie thing that only, you know, people that live in caves do it. It's it's a modern thing. Um, modern medicine and science has caught up to the fact that meditation is important and um, necessary for our well-being, particularly in this day and age where information overload the amount of demand that we have on our plates, the amount of challenge, the amount of kind of pressure we've got to deal with, we need that balance of rest in order to cope. So there are lots of different types of meditation out there. And it's kind of important that you realize what you're getting yourself into. A lot of the techniques have been adapted from monastic traditions, which mean that they're intended for people who live a monk lifestyle who live in a cave and can meditate for 12 hours a day and, you know, don't own possessions, don't have relationships, don't interact in the world. That's not us, I'm assuming. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) So we need to find a technique that's going to work for our kind of lifestyle, and Vedic meditation is part of that. Um, Normally, we could categorize meditation into two different categories. So there's the concentrative types of meditation where... The intention there is to concentrate on something really, really hard in order to create stillness in the mind. The other kinds of techniques that we have are the contemplative type. So Vedic meditation doesn't fit into either of those two categories. It's an effortless technique, and we call it a self-transcending technique. What transcend really means is to go beyond. And what we're doing in Vedic meditation with the use of a mantra, which I can explain in a minute, is that we're stepping beyond the conscious thinking mind. And we're using the mantra, which is a mind vehicle, 
to help us go into the more quiet and still place. Um, If you imagine the mind like an ocean, then at the top of the ocean, we have the waves. So say for you and I, it might be Bondi Beach. (laughs) And we know what we know of Bondi on a busy Sunday, sun's out, it's chaotic. There are surfers, there are kids screaming, there are lifesavers. And also if there's a particular kind of current in the ocean, it's kind of hectic, it's rough. And our minds are a bit like that. So at the surface layer of the mind, we've got the activity level and we're having lots of thoughts and those thoughts are often related to action. You know, oh, I've got to do this. Or I've got to remember to text that person or what about that pair list. of shoes? Yeah. Exactly. And so we're kind of caught in that um, messy, busy current of the mind. And particularly when the environment is rough or when there's a real current or rip, say, in the ocean or in the mind, we're really at the mercy of that. So now we're being thrashed by the waves. And we all know our own experience of that. When we're the, when demand increases and challenge increases in our day, we really get thrashed around and the mind is so rampant. We can't, people often say, I, I, can't, I can't escape my mind or I can't just have that stillness. And of course yeah. you can't because... All you have access to is that part of your mind. You haven't trained your mind to go beyond that, to step beyond that conscious thinking mind or that particular um, sort of surface layer. And so what happens in Vedic meditation is that you get given a mantra. And mantra from Sanskrit actually translates directly as mind vehicle. Manas is the Sanskrit word for mind and tra is where we get our English word like transport. So it's, it's like a little mind taxi that you hop in And it helps to take you beyond the top layer of the mind where the chaos is and into the more quiet and subtle. And just like in the ocean, when we start moving towards the bottom of the ocean, even when there's a a rip happening, we can find stillness. And so this is the same with meditation. It doesn't really matter what's going on in our lives, but we're able to move towards the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the mind, which we define as being. Um, there are lots of different techniques and modalities and kind of philosophies trying to describe what that state is. But the Vedic meditation lens on it is that, or the beautiful way that we would describe it as being. And what, you know, the inference of that is that we're not thinking, we're not acting, we're not doing, we're not acquiring. We simply are. We're in our simplest essence, our most innate essence. And that being state isn't something that you know, you get given after you learn to meditate. It's actually innate. And what's great about this conversation is because all the mamas listening will know that when they look into their baby's eyes, their baby is actually in that state. That's why they're so blissful. They're so calm because they haven't acquired all the muddy sediments of experiences and stress and trauma and imprints and negative um, or limiting beliefs you know, we, they haven't accumulated all the kind of um, parenting that might have gone on in their lives yet. They've, they've yet to have the experience. And so they're in that really innocent, innate essence, which we all have. So what Vedic meditation's doing, and more profoundly than I've ever seen before in, with other techniques, is that it's giving you access to that being state. It's giving you access um, twice a day to be able to know yourself as that state and to be able to um, imprint the mind, body, physiology, ego structure all on that state, meaning that when we come out of meditation, we take a part of that state with us. And now that state is operating 
and in our awareness with our eyes open. So we bring a more calm, more resilient, more stable, more anchored uh, version of ourselves to the world. Mm. Um, I heard the analogy, I don't remember where from, maybe Mm. from Tom Tom Knowles, Mm -hmm. the idea of this twice a day, we go in and and imagine that you're going into a honeypot and you're dipping yourself from Mm. head to toe in honey. And then as you go through your day, so you do that before breakfast, let's say, and then you go through your day and the honey will, it's there in the beginning and then it starts to drip off and you get more and more dry. And eventually by 5 p.m. the honey is gone and then it's time to go back in for a little honey dip. And as time goes and goes and goes and you have this continuous practice, eventually the honey stays because you're in such a cycle that you maintain a bit of that honey layer on you. I love that analogy. It just, I don't know, it really resonates with me. When you describe, you know, the top of the ocean, our mind, the busy mind, is that the same as, or can it be described as the ego? Or is it a completely different thing? I mean, there would, there would be lots of different angles that we could take this. But from the Vedic worldview, there are different layers to our, ourselves. And at our most essential form, there would be the being state. And then on a more gross layer, there's the physical body, the mental body, the emotional body, and the ego body, So plus, plus a number of others. And so it's not necessarily to say that it's the same, but of course there's a correlation because as we experience our lives, we have imprints. And this is going to possibly lead us into talking about stress, which is a good thing to touch on. (laughs) Um, But as we go through our lives, we all have experiences and it leaves an imprint and a lasting imprint. And I think particularly with reference to children and when the ego structure gets developed, I think it's a Steiner philosophy um, thing to say that between zero and seven, 95% of your inner voice is established, meaning how important it is to when we parent our children and when we interact with them to have kind of a conscious approach, to have an aware approach to what's happening because, you know, experience after experience is actually leaving impression after impression. And through those impressions and through that inner voice building is how the ego structure develops. And so, you know, post that time, we're just now perceiving experiences through that lens. So we're going about our day, but already the the kind of ego value of you're not worthy has been imprinted. So now we see the world through that lens or, you know, it's only valuable to be smart and beautiful. And in which case, you know, you don't deserve love um, if you're not those things. So I guess where they're related is that the thoughts that we're having in the mind can be very much or are very much informed by the ego structure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of the common languages, you know, ego and, you know, we translate a lot of that negativity to the e- that that mm. is the ego. Mm. So I just wanted to clarify whether that can be, but it, that makes sense. That makes well, sense. Well, actually, from the Vedic perspective, the ego isn't bad at all. And what we want to do, and it was kind of what you're touching on before with the honeypot, is we want to um, grow the ego. We want to grow it so big that it becomes the universe. It becomes you know, um, the cosmos. And so what we're doing with Vedic meditation is we're actually impressing on the ego that being state. And the being state is an unbounded field of infinite potential, infinite um, 
you know, adaptability and capability. So what we're doing when we imprint the ego onto that state is that we're exposing it and we're beginning to identify ourselves as that oneness state as opposed to the labels that we either might have given ourselves or might have been told, you know, you're a woman or you do this job. Oh, now you're a mother. So, you know, everything else gets out the window and your needs and your values and the way that you used to operate is no longer important. And and so without without having your ego being, you know, totally universal, if I can say that, then we're actually stuck because we're very bound by descriptions and we're bound by, um, you know, what someone might tell us or what we might think of ourselves. We're bound by the roles and the boxes that we put ourselves in when really what we want to do is know ourselves to be so much more than that, know ourselves to be that infinite potential, know ourselves to be bliss, know mm. ourselves to be that being state. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like when we have... You know how you say the mantra, it's this, you know, it's the vehicle mm-hmm. that we use. If we are sadly in a day-to-day life, have quote-unquote mantras that are, I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not qualified enough, or I'm a bad mother, I'm sure we have all had that mm-hmm. mantra on occasion. Mm-hmm. But if that is the day-to-day thing that we're repeating, maybe years after years after years, then of course that's going to that's going to be what is being expressed. So sometimes I see that as if there, if if we're walking around or trying to explain that if we can change that narrative or the conversation we have in our minds um, to shifting that to not the, the old narrative that we've been told or however we picked up those words and those ideas of ourselves, if that can be switched into something that is more positive, things will unfold from there. And ultimately, the mantra is, is what helps. But the mantra doesn't mean anything, does it? The mantras that we use in Vedic meditation, they don't have any intended meaning. They're a primordial sound. And so they work on the level of sound as opposed to meaning. Um, when you get given a mantra, it resonates with your particular bundle of vibrations. And so what happens, the nature of these mantras is that they self-refine. They get subtler and vaguer and finer and fainter not because of what they mean or what they might affiliate to, but rather the sound quality. And what the mind does is the mind finds that incredibly charming. The mind hears that soothing sound. And as the sound is moving towards the more subtle layers of the mind, i.e. the bottom of the ocean, the mind follows it. The mind prefers that sound over thinking other thoughts. And so it gets dragged into that still, quiet, blissful state. And you might have the experience inside meditation where you're close to that state and then you think, oh, I'm almost there or I'm there. And that's a thought in which we might pop up back to the surface. And thoughts are actually a part of Vedic meditation. That's another distinct difference is that over the course when you, when you learn to meditate, you get told how to, how to treat them, how to deal with them. And also in my courses, I'll share the value of what thoughts are, what the role of thoughts are. So we're not trying to exclude anything and it's not some kind of uh, practice where we have to force or push anything out. Everything's allowed to be there and when you learn Vedic meditation, you'll learn how to deal with the things appropriately. But what I was going to say with um, regards to how we, how you were saying how we might get told one day, you know, this particular thing and how do we let go of that and swap it out for new patterns? And basically what 
what you're inferring is how do we change our neurochemistry? How do we change the neuropathways firing? Yeah, we all know from it's not being, easy and to go from, <laughs> from one story of ourselves to another. And it's the one story of ourselves, as you were saying, we've practiced for years. So it's like us taking a crayon and, you know, making a very, very um, strong groove, say, in mud where every time there's an opportunity for a thought, it will filter and fire through that neuropathway. And so the lens through which we perceive everything has been based on all of those impressions. What we would say is that those impressions have occurred, you know, during stress. And so what happens with Vedic meditation is that it's actually a process due to the deep level of rest that we're allowing our bodies to have during that time of unwinding that stress. Would you like me to talk about it a little more? I would love <laughs> you to do that. Like, how deep are we going into this? <laughs> We're going there, especially <laughs> when it comes to stress. <laughs> that's true. I think that's it's a good one. So let's talk a little bit about stress then. Um, I mean, it's funny that I'm talking to you when you have all the knowledge on the physiology <laughs> of stress, but maybe for your listeners, we can kind of go through it. So when we're stressed, what we mean by that is the body's gone into a state of fight-flight. You can picture, and people have probably heard this example, but the saber-toothed tiger, you know, comes into your environment and all of a sudden you are literally needing to fight or flee for your life. So it's a survival mechanism. And there's nothing wrong with the body having that survival mechanism. It saved our lives and it's brought us to the, you know, through evolution to survive as a species. But what we need to know is having that reaction multiple times a day, you know, almost all day, if we don't know how to step out of that reaction, um, is going to have a very negating effect on the physiology long term and also short term in terms of how we behave and, you know, what, what occurs through the body. So when, when we go into a fight or flight response, even if it's because we've been, we're at work and we've been sent an email that we, you know, didn't expect, or our kid um, starts taking those crayons that we we're all talking about and starts drawing on the wall. And what happens if we're accustomed? The body so readily goes into that fight or flight um, response, and so the body in that moment in time is thinking literally that there's a threat in the environment. And so, you know, the amount of adrenaline that's pumping through the veins, which would be like soaring through the roof, um, the blood gets thicker in our system because it would want to, the body would want the blood to coagulate so that the saber-toothed tiger didn't maul us to death. Um, the pH of our blood becomes more acidic, and that's because we want to taste nasty to the predator. We don't want them to keep mauling us. Um, but we all know the effect of having a pH blood and, and, and sort of acidity in the body. It's deteriorating. It deteriorates the system. It deteriorates the muscles. Um, we have a beating heart, a racing heart when we have that fight-flight response. And that's because the body's like, right, let's pump as much oxygen to the muscular system so that we can fight this tiger, i.e., the child that's, you know, drawing on, on the wall. And then you're not going to escape that little child because it's going to be there every day, all day. <laughs> They're going to do something tomorrow. <laughs> and that's right. And so the body's going through, you know, huge amounts of um, change in order to kind of process what's happening. Um, the other thing that happens is that the immune system and the digestion system 
slow down or switch off because from the body's perspective, they're not immediate you know, needs right now. So hence why when people are highly stressed, they're getting sick a lot because their immunity is run down. Or we have all these gut-related diseases, as you know yeah. so well. Yeah, yeah. So stress happens when we can't adapt. When we can adapt, that's a different story. And what we've um, really relied on is the work of Hans Selye, who is an endocrinologist. He basically determined that we could have what's called adaptation energy. And adaptation energy is basically what it sort of sounds like. It's, it's essentially the amount of energy that we have in us to meet the demands that are being thrown at us or to have a stress reaction. You know, it's, it, if we have enough of it, we'll adapt. And we, we all know those days when we've had a great night's sleep, we're feeling good, we've started the day on the right foot, we can adapt to, say, the first few things that get thrown our way. But by the end of the day, like you were saying, at 5 p.m., when the adaptation energy has depleted and depleted and depleted, then we've got nothing left to give. Hence why, as moms or even as pregnant women, we're feeling exhausted because there's just so much demand that's being placed on the physiology. So adaptation energy it can be invested in. It's like a bank balance. If you invest in it, it goes up. And if you don't, it goes down, it gets drained. But it's not like you get a set amount for life that, you know, you weren't born with all that much. You need tools, i.e. rest, i.e. meditation to invest in it. And so what happens when we have a demand that gets thrown at us, whether it's the email or the child drawing on the, on the, um, on the walls, our body's going to respond to that thing as if it was a saber-toothed tiger if we don't have enough adaptation energy to adapt. So what that means is if we don't have enough adaptation energy, we're going to have that full-blown stress reaction and our body's going to kind of go into, um, into gear for fighting this tiger that's actually not there. And so throughout the day, we're experiencing that multiple times. And given the amount of pressure, the amount of information overload, like we were talking about before, it seems that the, um, the stress reactions are happening more and more quickly and more and more readily, more frequently and all the time. And it's like we don't actually have an opportunity to step away from that. We don't have a, a chance to reset, to give ourselves a break. And so we're kind of on this treadmill, on this hamster wheel where we're meeting demands or we're, we're getting thrown demands and po- probably not adapting or if we are the depletion you know the adaptation levels deplete and another demand comes and we're kind of just facing this overload of stimulus um and in relation to what we were talking about with the sort of storylines the impressions so some of our stresses that get um imposed on us are emotional. So there are the physical stresses and then there are the emotional and there's also chemical stresses. So chemical could be, you know, not eating that well or drinking too much when we were younger. Um, And emotional stresses are obvious. It's what occurred, whether it was in our childhood or later on in life, that gave us that negative talk. So what happens in meditation is through the use of the mantra, like we were saying before, the mind starts to follow it in towards that being state. And that being state is very, very, very profoundly restful for the physiology. And in that state, we're transcending 
the layers of the mind that tell us that we're not good enough. We're transcending the emotions that, um, you know, all the experiences that we've had to date. We're transcending and letting go of all the imprints and impressions that we've experienced. And we submerge into that honeypot and we let go, basically. And in that deeply restful state, our bodies actually have an innate nature. And as you know, our bodies innately know how to birth. So they're deeply intelligent. And it's like, it almost seems that modern science is only kind of catching up to this idea that it's actually the body that's so intelligent. It's not the mind that's going to inform the body what to do. We can't tell our body through the use of our mind to birth or to birth well. And we can't tell them. It's definitely not going to work. We can't ask our body to be pregnant, you know, through the use of the mind. So Mm. what happens very quickly is this trust in the body's intelligence. And in that, while we're in this deeply restful state, is that the body's innate nature is to actually self-repair, is to heal, detoxify, metabolize on a cellular level. And so what's happening when we're meditating and we're resting to levels that are up to five times as restful as sleep is that the body's going through a rejuvenation. Can you just repeat that? For all the tired mamas. <laughs> That's true. We need to get onto <laughs> all that. All the tired mamas. <laughs> Meditation is? Two to five times more restful than sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty valuable. Yes, it is. It's like, and it's not like that groggy sleep that we sometimes might have if we need a cat nap. Because you're kind of in this half state where you're actually neither here or there. Exactly. It's conscious rest. So conscious rest means we're actually not becoming unconscious like we do when we're sleeping, but we're allowing the mind to be awake while the body falls into that deep, deep rest. And whilst it's doing that, it's repairing and it's actually letting go of these imprints, of these old impressions and we call them premature cognitive commitments, which is basically the understanding that at the time that we get stressed, our body takes a snapshot of the environment and stores it in the cellular memory for good reason. We want to know that next time there's a trigger like that or some kind of sense impression like that, we need to gear up into the fight or flight response quicker. So what happens in that deep rest is we begin to let go of those things and we're unwinding. And also going back to the um, like the neural pathways and how would we change that? How would we go from negative self-talk to positive self-talk? Well, I'm telling you this, it's not by telling ourselves that we should or hoping that it's going to change overnight. When we dip into that being state, we have neutrality. We let go of all those neuropathways that might have led us to thinking in a particular way. And we basically offer ourselves a new platform. And so the brain is working more coherently in that state. It's been measured to do so. And so we can come out with the opportunity to recreate and to, you know, build a better, a better version of ourselves, build a better way in which we perceive ourselves, talk to ourselves. But it's through two, two kind of key concepts. One is that we're letting go of stress and we're letting go of those impressions that have caused us to be a particular way. So once we let go of those, we come out into the world and those same things that used to trigger us, they don't anymore. But also what happens when we come out of meditation, like the honeypot analogy, is that we've got that honey bliss in our awareness all the time. And so even when we meet a demand, when the kid is about to draw, you know, on the wall or just in our day and age, you know, any, any tiny challenge that might come our way, 
we've actually got that background of being state or that background of bliss that we've had access to and that we have access to. We've strengthened the communication channel to that, to that state of awareness all the time. And so we're operating from a place where we're a much more calm, much more stable, much more resilient. There's a fascinating thing that happens in the brain when we're stressed. When we're stressed, the prefrontal cortex of the brain switches off. And so what that means is the prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain that's responsible for, uh, you know, emotional reasoning, logic, planning. So it's the human brain. It's the part that distinguishes us from animals. When we're in a fight-flight response, we don't need to be emotionally sound. Actually, we do, but the body doesn't think so. And so that's why we have these stress reactions and we kind of say things that we don't mean. And at the end of the day, when we've got no adaptive energy left, we might blow up regret to things. our partner or <laughs> yeah. our children. Yeah. Exactly. We might regret. So what's happening is inside meditation, we're actually activating the prefrontal cortex and we're reminding ourselves to be able to, um, to use that part. And so when we come out of meditation and we're not in a fight-flight response, there'll be a, a more sort of emotional, sound, stable, resilient aspect. And having the capability to respond as opposed to react, which is very distinctly different, as I'm sure listeners can understand. Which is often why I end up talking to people about meditation is because so many of us are just reacting to one thing after the other. And it's continuous and it doesn't really stop when you think about it, because it may be that you wake up in the morning and you have all the right intentions, but then the phone ring and the nappy blows out and the din <laughs> you know the breakfast is not good enough and your baby doesn't want to eat it and you got to go on to the next thing. <laughs> and it just basically rolls from there. Mm. And it sounds miserable, but that's just life. Mm -hmm. And so it's this ability to not get so caught up in the negative elements of that. So I often talk about it in terms of being having a tool where you can, you know, basically stop doing what you have been doing because it's not serving you and it's, 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 it's too hard. This is where I think a lot of the time when I hear your mother's on the playground or if I overhear some, you know, talk on the street, it's often this thing where it's repeated, motherhood is so hard, it's so hard, it's so mm hard. -hmm. Like it's a very negative twist to it. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. But I also feel so grateful mm -hmm. that I have a little magic tool in my toolbox where I'm able to reset. And that's mm -hmm. what it feels like. It feels mm -hmm. like I don't have to fully participate in all the hard day-to-day -day stuff. And I don't get, of course I participate, but I don't get caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't consume me, which mm -hmm. I think is, this is the thing that I would love for all parents to know about because um, it's essentially the easiest thing you could do. It's easier than chopping up vegetables <laughs> and getting your three to six cups a day of vegetables. It is uh, a lot easier. And, um, and the other thing of it from a meditator perspective is that you, um, it's not about doing something that's hard. It's actually for once or for twice, twice during your day, you get to do something that's incredibly easy. You don't have to sit in a certain position. You don't have to be in a certain booga booga state. You don't have to wear anything fancy or it's really just whatever and wherever you are, you just close your eyes and you use that mantra, as you said. Mm -hmm. So 
Essentially, it's the easiest thing you could add to your life that will take away some of this heavy, heavy stuff that, that we get caught up into. Mm. I, I want to just quickly share uh, when I started to meditate, which is actually almost, I think, nearly 10 years ago now, which Amazing. is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, when I was pregnant with my first child mm. and uh, I was really dizzy in pregnancy and it wasn't anemia um, but I was very dizzy and I was led here by Nadine Richardson to Vedic meditation and um, as soon as I did the initiation I uh, the, the dizziness stopped like literally I think a couple of minutes into meditating for my very first time and look I'm a yoga teacher I've been a yoga teacher for many years and I've done all kinds of types of meditation so I was quite hooked just by the notion that it could change that quickly. But at the end of the, was it three days? I think it was three days. Or was it maybe four days? I teach so, over four days. Four days. Mm. After the first few days of doing it, I remember it was also 6 a.m. in the morning because that was the only time I could learn. Um, and I was walking down a hill. I was headed off. I think I was doing an exam then, actually, the same day. I was walking down the hill and this gush of wind came and two... Uh, garbage bins fell right in front of me with a massive bang mm. and my normal response would have been to jump or like oh do something you know as a bit of a shock but my body did not flinch mm. not I didn't even blink an extra time mm -hmm. and I just calmly walked around it whilst thinking in the back of my head hmm <laughs> that was an unusual reaction <laughs> or a lack of reaction mm. um, and that was when I realized whoa there's something happening here that I can't describe mm. And all I've done since is to just basically sit down and do the work in terms of, of meditating twice a day. And, um, and when people ask me how, uh, how, you know, raising three children, attending birth and doing life with everything that it has, and we don't have family here, um, I have to say that meditation is, is one of my, you know, secret superpowers. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, but when you are pregnant and mm -hmm. when in the first year of motherhood, I believe it is, or in the early stages of motherhood, um, it's not necessarily 20 minutes twice a day. Is that correct? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, pregnant women can meditate as much as they like, actually, using Vedic meditation. And it's for a very good reason. When a mum is pregnant or a mum-to-be, they're experiencing so many demands on the physiology. You know, creating an entire little being inside their system is going to require so much energy. And so in order to mitigate that level of demand, in order to cope with it, they need adequate rest. And as we were saying before, Vedic meditation is two to five times more restful than sleep. So giving them something, you know, as restful as, as that is going to certainly help with you know, balancing the hormones, the emotional ups and downs. Um, in my case, it was the fatigue, particularly in the first trimester and also in the third. You know, you're carrying this extra weight and your body, like we know so well, the baby's taking everything. Um, in order to kind of supplement that as well as using supplements and seeing someone like you and getting on the right sort of health program, we give our bodies rest because that is absolutely necessary. Also, what's really important to notice for a pregnant woman is that the baby is absorbing everything that you are experiencing. So like we know um, through the placenta, the baby is being fed. But it's not just being fed 
food sources or energy, but also the biochemistry that the mother's experiencing. And this is, we owe it to our children and our babies to be in a happy, blissful, resilient, stable state whilst pregnant, especially because we're going to have that kind of overload, ups and downs, you know, new experience if it's a first-time mum, completely being in the unknown. So we've got all this demand to cope with. And if we're not feeling in a good state or if we're feeling anxious or experiencing lots of adrenaline in the system, the baby's going to experience that. So it's really, really important that we reset ourselves. And so for pregnant women, you know, we say that they can meditate as much as they like. And and when they learn with a, a, a you know a proper teacher, um, they'll explain that properly over the course. And for new parents, I actually encourage the women that come to me to sort of in the first few months when, you know, there's absolutely no routine and no one can expect a routine from you um, to just sort of meditate. It's called catches catch can. And it basically means, (laughs) I think that's a Tom quote. Um, (laughs) Sure it is. It basically means to whenever they get a moment, they can meditate. And even though we wouldn't advise someone else to meditate for five minutes here and there, a new mother can because that's what all she's going to get. So any time that they have a little bit of time to themselves or if it's breastfeeding or just someone else is holding the baby for a little while, meditate. And just doing that, you know, multiple times staggered throughout the day is going to help the healing process so much more. I also, um, you know, I recommend women, and I'm sure you do too, it's pretty well known when the baby goes down, the mum goes down. Yet it seems that we've kind of conditioned in ourselves, the house should look perfect, or we should make our guests a cup of tea, even though the baby's asleep, or whatever it is that we um, think we should be doing other than looking after ourselves. And, you know, when I'm guiding mums-to-be or new mothers through that process, it's absolutely about taking that rest because everything is going to be better off having had that 20 minutes. So, um, you know, we talk about that lots over the course as to kind of how to fit it in. But then once the routine is established, say that the baby has a sleep routine and there's a little bit more or you're back at work, even though you're new, a new mum, then if you're back at work, you can probably start your work shift <laughs> by a 20 minute meditation. And it's just going to be more beneficial. So I encourage people to get back into that routine as soon as possible. Um, however, there's absolutely that leeway in um making it accessible for new mums when and new dads when there's you know when their time is completely dependent on their little being yeah yeah and I often even I mean as I said it's been nearly 10 years but I every now and then I'm like I don't have time for this today I'll have these moments still mm. where uh 20 minutes seems like a lot of time mm-hmm. and um especially when my children were younger in terms of you know, that a baby might sleep for 40 minutes. So 20, half of that, I mean, gosh, it seems like you're, you know, that's all that precious time is gone. But then this thing is that, like, just exactly what you said, which is what I always, what always pops into my head, luckily, which is that if I just do the 20 minutes, then whatever comes at me, I can handle it. Totally. And that makes me sit down and do it. And <laughs> I don't know, it feels like it's true. It really feels like, Okay, because you come out, you come out honey dipped, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so why wouldn't it be better on the other side? 
Totally. Well, you've topped up your adaptive energy, which means that the next demand that's going to get thrown at you, and it will with a newborn or with, you know, a few kids, you're going to be able to meet that demand with ease and grace as opposed to screaming or being upset or, you know, in a non-functional state. <laughs> and so when it comes to meditating, if um, what what are the benefits in terms of, you know, obviously I, I often think of women and women's health and making sure that we are okay as new mothers that, you know, particularly when it comes to mental health and of course physical health, but our mental health is very wobbly um, during this phase of life Mm. of of reproductive and making babies and looking after babies and finding ourselves on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's often why I, you know, love this idea of being still and being with yourself, which seems like such a luxury after after having a child. But what are the ripple effects onto the family? Because, oh <laughs> you know, I realized that um, that it's, you know, like you and Tony, for example, it's not necessarily a couple's thing to do right away. <laughs> um, but there are ripple effects that are incredibly beneficial, as far as I know, in terms of just one meditator in a family can change dyna- the dynamic significantly. Oh, my gosh. So much to say on the ripple effects. <laughs> Um, well, the first thing that came to mind as you were asking the question was this idea of surrender. And you probably talk to your clients about it in terms of the prep before birth and even preconception, the idea that we can't control everything. It's like prior to knowing this or truly actualizing this, our mind is constantly looking to control situations. And then when we can't, because we actually can't control anything, Um, we become disappointed and we suffer. So what Vedic meditation does very, very well on a visceral and experiential level is helps us to let go, helps us to surrender. And twice a day or, you know, during the pregnancy, if you're on a different program, we are experiencing that capability to let go. And this is actually truly profound because What that then means outside of meditation for our lives is we're so much more fluid and capable to adapt to what's coming. You know, change is all all that's ever happening. And we kind of get with the program quicker. So just like you were saying, I think about, you know, not being able to stop the kid from drawing or whatever, you know, there's always going to be a nappy to change. There's always going to be... Um, a kid not wanting to wear, Indy was doing this the other day, not wanting to wear, you know, a particular T-shirt or any T-shirt. Or any clothes at all. Or any clothes. There's (laughs) always going to be, you know, multiple challenge throughout the day, multiple demands and sort of stretching of us. And if we can surrender to that and kind of fall into that, let go to that, there's a real beauty that takes place and there's a real um, fluidness. And so instead of kind of you, trying to use the mind to go, oh, 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 we're only going to, when we have that kind of expectation, experience disappointment and suffering. Um, so I think the, the one of the major flow and effects is this capability to kind of go with the flow. And it doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries with our children and it doesn't mean that, um, you know, we don't guide them or kind of have intentions around how our lives might work and operate, but we're able to, it's like, it's like our lives are kind of going down a river 
And instead of trying to struggle and waste time and almost drown swimming upstream, we just hop in the boat and enjoy the ride. And I think with that, you were kind of touching on your experience, you know, not getting too bogged down by those tasks in the day, changing the nappies and also doing the dishes and may perhaps managing a business on the side. You know, we could perceive those things as being really hard and really, oh, you know, my life is tough and all that sort of stuff. But if we have this capability. And it's not just a philosophy to surrender. I wouldn't tell anyone that as a philosophy. They actually have to viscerally viscerally experience it inside meditation. Then there's this kind of flow that happens. And the second point, which we touched on what, what happens in utero with a baby in terms of the biochemistry being passed on, but we also know that through breastfeeding and also you know, energetically, like we all know our experience when we hop into the elevator with someone and they're just sort of exuding stress. It's uncomfortable to be around. Oh, yes. It feels, it's so palpable. It's so obvious. And so there's this flow and effect that happens with whatever kind of bundle of vibrations we're all working with. And so similarly, you know, when someone that you meet is exuding happiness and radiating life and light, It's just a pleasure to be around them and you kind of want to be around them more because it's just, it feels good. So the same is absolutely and to a more extreme degree going to happen with our nucleus families and our extended families in that when we become better versions of ourselves, the flow and effect of that, the capacity for awareness of what might be happening, the spaciousness that we feel within ourselves when you know, life does feel really tight and there are lots of deadlines and lots of change and lots of things. The sort of adaptive energy that we build with having, say, we've had no sleep because the baby was up all night and then we've fortunately, when they went down during the day, we had our 20 minutes rest. I can't tell you how beneficial that's going to be. And so when all that happens, the flow and effect to the people that are closest to you it's going to be felt because that better version of you, that happier, more stable, more energetic, more capable person who's interacting with everyone is going to be kind of shining a light. And so people tend to follow, you know, it wasn't long. Yes, it took a year before Tony learned, but it wasn't long because he realized that he too wanted what I had. And I mean, I'm sure you get asked all the time. It's like, how do you do it? Or how do you stay so calm? What is your secret? <laughs> Absolutely. All the time. All the time. Um, which is such a, I mean, it's wonderful to know that it actually shows, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly a, um, a feeling of knowing yourself better, which I think ultimately is more delightful to be around anyone who has sound boundaries, a, a really deep awareness of who they are is going to feel very safe to be with. And that's often the thing that I think probably is the main thing that has changed for me personally mm. is being more me. Mm. I was very little me before. Well, that's what it mm. felt like. And, um, and I'm so grateful to have that as a mother because that's, you know, there's, we're always going to feel like, well, there's always going to probably be a, a slight feeling of, could we do this better? Could we be better parents? Could we be better mothers? Could we be more attentive? Could we give more love? But I do find that there's a lot less of that. And some days there's none of it, to be honest, mm. in terms of just knowing that what I am and who I am showing up as is 
me and it doesn't have to be any different. Also, to your point, is that, as we know, our children absorb everything. They imitate us. So even recently, you know, Indy's only 15 months or not even, everything I say, she's trying to repeat. And now she's, <laughs> I haven't told you this, but she's taking my dresses <laughs> that I don't even want to wear, <laughs> but she does. She's wrapping them around herself and kind of imitating. And so when we are setting the tone for our family, like, self-care is a value or it's important. Um, resetting, you know, is a cultural value as a family that we have. Going slow. And even, they, you know, you can have so many others as well, but just some of these, we're passing that on to our children in a very um, obvious way. The other thing that made me, um, that what you were saying made me think of, and I'm, I know you've read Dr. Shafali Sabari's book, The Conscious Parent, and if I'm honest, it's only the only book that I read about parenting and I haven't even finished it. <laughs> but her view is very, very Vedic. It's very, very similar to the Vedic worldview and how she kind of explains what's happening between mother and child or father and child. And the one sort of pearl of wisdom, one of the pearl of wisdoms that I've taken from her is appreciating our children for their beingness. She even says that for their beingness, wow, yeah, meaning right. their innate mm-hmm. essence. And if anyone who's listening has done any personal work, we all know that all our BS and, you know, limiting beliefs comes from our childhood. It comes from experiences that we had because our parents, they were doing the best that they can or could at the time. But um, those impressions lasted. And so, What happens when we begin to meditate and have that awareness, as you were saying, of ourselves is that we are passing that on to our children and we can interact with them in a much more aware, spacious way. And like instead of kind of just subconsciously and automatically passing on old value systems that perhaps aren't even ours or we don't necessarily agree with, but we wouldn't be aware that they're just these ingrained patterns Instead of doing that, we can kind of have the spaciousness and choice, awareness, to um, to choose something different. Tony and I call it the circuit breakers because, mm. you know, these patterns and ways of doing things and ways of relating um, and fear mentality, all these sorts of things have been passed down for generations and generations. And through our own personal work and work together, we've been like, right, this is what we want to keep and this is what we don't. But we couldn't have done that without the meditation practice because it's the meditation practice that's helped us to reset and also to acknowledge what's actually going on and what we want to offer our child and definitely need to put that as a um, caveat to say we're still doing the very best that we can and I'm sure we'll make mistakes and I've already, you know, it's just, it's just... But it's a more conscious approach. It's a more aware approach. Mm. And it's kinder on ourselves. That's totally. the thing, isn't it? Like we don't, we don't get to dwell and beat ourselves up in a negative way. That's the thing that I think is ultimately so freeing mm. uh, is that you get those moments during the day, whether it's twice a day or small pockets during the day, to let go yeah. of that. Yeah. Whatever it is that can feel very claustrophobic or imprisoning. Mm. We'll have to round up. This is just so, I think, personally, it's so incredibly juicy and I could keep going. Um, 
but I really hope that it's that it has given some insight to what this technique is and what it offers and how it differs because mm. it's really not something you can get in an app it's not it's mm. it you know it's it's very big um and as I'm sure people can hear is that we could probably talk about this for <laughs> several hours more but I I do really wish for this to become a notion that this is a tool that is accessible to absolutely everyone. Of course, you don't have to be, be a, um, a parent or expecting a baby. This is ups, uh, absolutely for everybody um, and has benefits in all areas of life. I just uh, personally find that, you know, mothering and growing babies and going through birth and all the stuff that comes with that is very, very intense. And mm. it just is one thing on top of the other. So it's one of those things, one of those tools that um, I believe is and an absolute gift for um, a new parent and, of course, for our babies, for the, for the next generation. Now, um, do you have any, if you had to summarize, <laughs> what a funny idea, three things for the listeners to take away, mm-hmm. what would be the most helpful place for them to start in terms of exploring this a little bit more deeply, perhaps. There's a pause because I have to think about it. So as a teacher of Vedic meditation, I don't really recommend any kind of diluted version of what it is that we teach because it's so profound and you wouldn't necessarily get all the same benefits. So what I would say is if there's a teacher near you, the first step is to go to an intro talk. Um, At an intro talk, we'll sort of discuss lots of things, some of which we've covered today, but also kind of you get to meet the teacher in person and feel if they resonate for you and you can kind of decide whether this thing is going to be a part of your life or not. The second piece of advice would be if if that sort of didn't, um, you know, if that sounded too much, (laughs) then I would look at your priorities because... This this is the strict (laughs) pep talk coming out. Um, But if you're feeling in any way overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, not having enough energy, not feeling like your most vibrant self, which is all understandable, as we've been saying, because of the amount of demand that particularly being a mother really is, um, going through pregnancy and having a child, which no one can really explain to you the challenge of that. And I really hear that. hope you can tell that from my voice. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, if you are feeling that things aren't really working, then I think it becomes a priority dilemma as to not investing in yourself. Why wouldn't you? If you've heard all, you know, the possible things that can do for you and it feels like, oh, maybe I just won't have the time. Maybe there's a way in which that can be mixed up. And if you come along to an intro talk or, and on my course, you know, I go through, um, usually we talk about each individual's personal sort of life situation and work out where practically they might be able to fit in the two meditations. And advice number three, but this comes after perhaps doing the first two, is reading the Conscious Parent book. Because I think if you do want a really lovely, um, way of thinking about being with your children and having a really conscious approach to the way in which you bring them up, but also the fact that our children are our teachers and kind of getting on board with that and and 
you know, I talk about motherhood being like the call to rise up. It's, yes, they're challenging, but that's our opportunity to step into it and to rise. And I know from, you know, my own experience that even from the womb, I knew that Indy wanted me to be a better person and therefore the mother that she needed to me needed me to be by the end of the pregnancy term. Um, so I think what Shivali, Shivali Sabari talks about in that book would really resonate if, if that sounds um, like something you'd be interested in doing. But do all three. <laughs> Definitely do all three. I have absolutely loved this. And uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll come back and we can go into more detail. This was incredibly helpful to finally have a little bit more clarity around what Vedic meditation is and what the differences are. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. I'll come back anytime. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions or topics that you would like me to speak about, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via my website, anamaria.com.au. And remember to subscribe so that you get each new episode as they become available. I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to write Mumsfire a review on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and your loved ones.